I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 tonight, Mark chapter number 5. We are going to be dealing with, I told you ahead of time, this is probably the last of, of this kind of series inside of a series where we're talking about winning souls. And uh, this evening specifically, as, as answer to a question that was asked of me, we're going to say how to win your family to Christ. Dealing this evening with how to win your family to Christ. This can be very challenging, but uh, let's look first of all in Matthew chapter number 5, verse number 22 and 23. And we'll get into our text this evening. He says, And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death, and I pray thee, come and lay thy hand on her that she may be healed and she shall live. We're going to spend this text here through the end of the chapter is really the, the scope of our text tonight. I will give you a lot of other scripture as we're talking about this topic, but we're going to draw our points and kind of the direction from this text and then go from there. Now we need to remember, as we've been talking about reaching a loss, that uh, heaven is... If, if heaven is real, and we believe it is, amen? amen? Well, if heaven is real, then hell is real. That's, we can't proclaim the glories of heaven without also proclaiming the horrors of hell. It is the same Bible that describes for us the love of Christ, that describes for us the judgment of Christ. It is the same pages of Scripture, beloved, that expound unto us the mercies of God and the truth of God. They're both there, and we need to remember those things. Let me also say that I, this evening, am completely aware of the fact that I'm coming from a position of being blessed beyond measure. As I deal with this topic of how to win your family members to Christ... I am in, in what's a even increasingly more and more rare situation. And that is that all of my immediate family and all of my extended family, every member of my family that I'm aware of, that I know, that I know of them, there may be second generation, third generation cousins somewhere that I don't even know exist, uh, like Joe, who just met an extended relative that he never even knew about just a few weeks ago. So there may be those, but people that I know, they're all saved. I mean, and that's God's blessing and, and certainly not anything that we look at. You guys know my dad's prayer was that God would allow him to live until all of his grandchildren were saved. Now that they're all saved, he says, I want to live till they all are serving Jesus. And I'm sure that when they're all serving Jesus, he'll say, I want to live till they're all married and have kids themselves or who knows what, how far he'll go. But uh, maybe he'll get fed up with it and say, Lord, take me home. I, I don't know. But uh, uh, he, he's still doing well, and I praise the Lord for that. But I, I, what I'm saying tonight is that I personally am not carrying the weight that some of you live with, with regards to knowing that your loved ones are not saved. I can only imagine what that weight is for you. I can only imagine what type of a ongoing burden that is or struggle in your mind, knowing that they're not on their way to heaven. If you're not concerned for their soul this evening, I would say there's something wrong. 
Maybe, beloved, I have failed to teach on the horrors of hell sufficiently that you would not be burdened about your loved ones going there. Or maybe, beloved, you've fallen prey to some of the watered-down and weak teaching and literally straight-up false teaching on hell that's out there. One modern teacher that I read this last week describing hell, listen to his description of hell. He says, The horror of hell is not a physical pain. After all, the Bible tells us hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, and they are not physical beings. Now, that sounds plausible. But listen as he goes on, where he tries to take the sting out of hell. Oh, it still has some sting, but listen to what he says. He says, rather, it is, fire is simply an outer darkness. The thirst that's depicted is literally a spiritual separation from God. Again, taking all the physical aspect out of it. He said, hell is the eternal loss of being a real person. In hell, the mathematician who lived for his science cannot add two plus two. The concert pianist who worshipped his art cannot play even the simplest of scales. The woman who made a god out of her fashion has thousands of dressers, sorry, thousands of dresses, but no mirror. That's his description of hell. I don't know what he does with Luke 16. Where the Bible says that the rich man lifted up his eyes being in torment. He was in such dire straits. He lifted up his eyes and he begged Father Abraham. He says, would you send somebody to just dip their finger in water? He begged to have just a drop of water to cool his tongue. I don't understand how you could get up and preach to somebody that hell is not a enduring of physical pain. That's what the Bible teaches very clearly. All through the New Testament, we have people who are concerned about their family. They are concerned about their friends. And often they'll do whatever's necessary to bring their friends or their family to Christ. One great example of this is that of the four friends who carried the lame man to Jesus. And, of course, we know the story. They tore the roof out and lowered it down to him, all the extent that they went to to try and get somebody they cared about to Jesus. But tonight we want to look at and consider Jairus and his daughter. He says here that my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee come. Lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And she shall live. He was, of course, talking about a physical death, but I, you guys all know that the greater death is a spiritual death. And that Jesus Christ, any time that we see him in the Bible giving sight to the blind and, and the ability to walk to the lame and healing the leper, he, he did give them physical healing, but he also gave them spiritual healing. Because, beloved, Jesus Christ didn't come to merely give sight to the blind and, and to give the ability to walk to the lame. The Bible tells us why he came. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
That's why he came. Now, he did give uh, healing to those that came across his path, but his ultimate goal is that they would believe on him and would be spiritually healed. That they would have spiritual life. As we consider or think about our loved ones, we should be far more worried and concerned about their eternal soul than we are about their physical calamities. But I wonder for how many that is not true. If you think about the effort that people go through when one of our loved ones is sick, the concern that consumes the heart of somebody, the burden that's there, and, and how, how many people we ask to, to, would you please pray for, for my daughter or pray for my brother? He was taken to the hospital and he had a, had a stroke or he had a cardiac arrest or, or he was diagnosed with this. Would you please pray for him? And then we have to ask, are they saved? We've known this individual for many years, and of course their, their brother has come up in many other conversations, yet at this point, the, the, the thing that motivated him to say, would you pray for my brother, is the physical ailment. But there ought to be a concern and a desire to see our loved one saved that, is over, that overrides any physical ailment that they have. That ought to be something that's on our heart and our mind and so I'm going to give you some points tonight. First of all, I'm going to give you an outline as we walk through this chapter uh, here in Mark. But also um, at the conclusion, I'm going to give you a few things specifically to do uh, to see your loved one saved. First of all, we want to review the command. We know, beloved, that it's important that uh, a, church, a church is, yes, to have a, a, reach, a goal to reach the world. Our own mission statement here is that we would reach those nearest our neighbors, and all nations. Well, in Luke chapter 24, verses 47 48, he says, And that repentance and the remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations. If you know the verses, it says beginning where? At Jerusalem. Beginning at Jerusalem, that the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ would be preached among all nations. But he says, beginning at Jerusalem, there is this implication in the scripture, in the Great Commission, in, in, in many passages of scripture, there's the implication, this, the outright command to begin to reach those nearest first. We have the responsibility to reach our loved ones first. We can't negate our responsibility to reach those nearest and feel better about how we're doing because we're given to missions or because we passed a track out somewhere in our Judea when we've neglected our Jerusalem. We've got to reach those nearest, our own family members. God has a plan and he included you in it, a plan for you to reach your family. Acts 1.8 says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in, what? Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts. But again, it began to Jerusalem. You don't get, this is Acts 1.8. I don't think, it, I think it's chapter 13 or chapter 14 before you see the first missions trip. In the foundation and the beginning of the church, you have all of those chapters of God doing a great and mighty work there in Jerusalem. They're reaching their own people. 
before they went out into the world. I think it was Oswald J. Smith that said, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. And if we're going to have a strong missions program, and I believe as a church we ought to have a strong missions program, but that missions program starts right here. It starts with us. It starts with us reaching those that we know, not with the uttermost. John R. Rice wrote, How can I meet him without my loved ones? How can I smile when I know that they are lost? When I see Jesus up in glory with the souls that he bought at such cost. Oh, bring your loved ones, bring them to Jesus. Bring them, every brother and sister to him. When come the reapers, home for the harvest. May all our dear ones be safe and gathered in. It ought to be something that we're burdened about. You know, that rich man in Luke chapter 16, you remember his concern? He said, oh, that I could have a drop of water to cool my tongue. And they said, sorry, you can't do that. He said, well, could somebody go and tell my brothers? Could somebody go tell my brothers? I've got some brothers that I don't want to come here. I don't want them to endure this. I don't want them to go through this. Somebody reach my brothers before it's too late. Friend, what will you say when you stand before God and he asked after your brother? Your son or daughter or grandma or grandpa. When you stand there and he asks, will you say, well, God, I gave to missions. Yeah, but did you win your mom to the Lord? Did you win your grandmother to the Lord? Did you win your aunt or your uncle to the Lord? Or did you leave them unreached? The fact of the matter is, there's no one in any better place to reach your family than you. You remember the story of Joseph. Joseph, God had a plan. His plan was to preserve his people. But he was going to use Joseph to do it. And I don't have time to go through the whole story tonight. You know what that is. But if you could take it and apply it to yourself and just think about the idea that God has a plan to preserve your family. Like Joseph's family was preserved. He said to his brothers, he says, you sold me. But God sent me. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You've got a family that God wants to preserve and he wants to do it through you. He wants to save your whole family. There's so many passages of Scripture that I could give you uh, dealing with this idea of your whole family coming to the Lord. You know, the Passover lamb was slain. It was slain for the whole family. In Exodus chapter 12. You remember Joshua, he took responsible for, responsibility for his whole family. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I know, beloved, that reaching your family and talking to them is among the hardest people you'll ever witness to. I understand that. I mean, if you make the guy down at the cor- on the corner mad, I mean, you're not happy about it. You don't feel good. You, you, you wish it would have gone better, but oh well. Never going to see him again. I don't have to talk to him again. I mean, I doubt our paths will ever cross. 
But you know, if you make your daddy mad, or your brother, or your sister, or one of your aunts or uncles, you, I know the struggle that goes on in your heart and mind, and, and the battle when you desire to present the truth, but don't want to make them mad and think, what kind of damage am I going to do to our relationship if I share this and they're not ready to hear it? Well, we know, beloved, that we have a command to do it. But I wonder, do we need to renew our concern? He says in Mark chapter 5, verse 22, there in 23, he says, And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly. This great searching and calling and looking for God to do something, there was a deep and abiding concern for her well-being. Do you have concern for the souls of your loved ones? Is it there? I read story after story this week in studying for this of people who prayed for their loved ones for 10, 15, 20, even one story was 59 years. And he said, in 59 years, I doubt I've missed 10 days praying for his loved one to get saved. In that particular story, he did get saved, actually. In the last cognitive conversation that they ever were able to have with him. Later that day, he had a secondary stroke, went to the hospital, and never recovered. But he trusted Christ. But will your concern motivate you that much? We've got to remember and realize, beloved, that it's the work of the Holy Spirit that must draw them. Men come to God because God draws them. Conviction of sin is something the Holy Spirit does. We can't convict them of sin. This is the struggle sometimes when you see, especially family members, and they're out living in sin and they're doing wrong, and you want to convict them of that. You want to say, don't you realize this is wrong? And you want to try and preach to them, but you know that's just going to make them mad. That's not going to help because you are not the Holy Spirit and you are not the Savior. The Holy Spirit has to do that work. It's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. Do you know conviction really has with it the idea of convincing. And if we let the Holy Spirit do the work, the Holy Spirit will convince them that they need a Savior. The Holy Spirit will convince them of their sinful state. And they'll realize that they need to trust Jesus Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit uses you and I. But you see, beloved, by our actions, we can either help or hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of our loved ones. That's something that should be readily on our hearts and minds. Are we helping or hindering the work of the Holy Spirit to see our loved ones saved? You see, beloved, any effort in our flesh to convince them will often just lead to conflict. Any effort in our flesh to convince them of their lost state or their sinful nature or their current condition will probably just lead to conflict. The Holy Spirit has to do that work. So you need the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit born out of a heart of concern to lead you 
as you strive to witness. You may need to retain your commitment. He says in verse number 35, in Mark 5, 35, he says, Well, he spake, there came from the rulers of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the words that were spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. We read this story and we hear him. This guy from the synagogue came and said, Hey, your daughter's dead. Don't need to bother Jesus anymore. And I know that a lot of times in the situations families dealing with extended families, they will see and uh, they'll consider and you realize that they're spiritually dead. But beyond that, we look at them and say, man, all hope is lost. All, all ambition or desire. I mean, I thought I was on fire for God and I was ready to witness and I went to him and tried to tell him about Jesus. And man, he shut me down and got angry and said, don't ever talk to me about Jesus again. And in your heart and mind, you feel like, man, all hope's gone. It's, it, it, he's, he's, yes, he's spiritually dead, but there is no desire for Christianity. There's no desire for the things of God. And if I bring it up, he's just going to get mad and it's just going to cause more problems. And, and you kind of, in your heart and mind, you, you, you lose all hope that it's even possible. But what did Jesus say? He says, hey, be not afraid, only believe. Beloved, if Jesus can raise from the dead, he can spiritually bring somebody to an awakening where they see their sinful condition and that they need Jesus. He can bring them to that place. It takes a dedicated and consistent effort to win them. God will touch their heart. They may not like the conviction, but they will see that from you it is a heart of love that keeps presenting it. It looks hopeless, but doesn't have to be. Maybe your loved one is like those that were in the house. We see those that were in the house here in verse number 37 through 40. He says, And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. This group of people here broken with the loss of this dear girl's life. In verse number 39, he says, And when he Cometh in, he saith unto them, Why maketh ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. Beloved, they might laugh you to scorn. They might look at your belief and your hope that God can do something and your desire to see them come to Jesus Christ, and they might laugh. They might scorn, they might mock, they might make fun of your faith that God really is saving souls and changing lives. And you lose hope to try and see any, any difference in them. But what can you do? I want you to know that first of all, you need to present 
the love of God. You need to present the love of God in your life and in your actions. Look back at verse number 19. This is a a different story, but Mark chapter 5, verse number 19, this is right before the story of Jairus' daughter. We have here the healing of the maniac of Gadaria, and he says, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath compassion on thee. If you don't have to turn there, but in Luke eight thirty nine, the same story is found, and he says there in Luke eight thirty nine, he says, Return to thine house and show how great things God hath done for thee. We need to show, beloved, the great things that God has done for us. We need to present the love of Christ, present the love of God in what we do and how we live. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, that they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, they'll see your good works. We are to present the change, present the love of Christ, present what God has done for us in the way that we live. One of the biggest problems for reaching our loved ones for Christ is when Christians don't live consistent Christian lives. You can't on Sunday preach about the love of Christ and on Monday live like, live like the devil. You can't go to them and say, boy, I wish you would see the love that God has and the change that God could bring into your life. And then they look at you and you're no different. They're not going to respond to that. We have got to present that change consistently in our lives and they are watching. They're going to use that one time that you allow your flesh to control you and you say the wrong things and act the wrong way and and and. Present yourself like somebody that doesn't know Jesus. They're going to use that and say, see, your faith is no different than mine. They'll grab a hold of that. It's vitally important that we as Christians realize the power of our testimony to help reach our loved ones for Christ. It's not just about a list of do's and don'ts so that you can fulfill the law. But it's ultimately about how we're living is impacting this world and those that we love and care about that we would want to see come to Jesus Christ, they're watching. They're looking at your life for any inconsistency. I don't remember who it was, but a a story just came to my mind. There was a, a pastor, I believe it was a pastor, and I don't know, Brother Edwards or somebody like that. Uh, but he, he told a story about how his next door neighbor for over 10 years watched him go to church. And he came over one week and said something was going on in their life. Something, I don't remember, a death in the family or I don't remember what happened exactly. But basically he came over and he said, for 10 years we've watched you from across the street or next door And every single Sunday without fail, you get in that car and you drive off to that church. There's something you're living for that I don't have. I need it. How real is your faith? It will make a difference and we live. You see, beloved, we can't afford to be a hypocrite. Your loved ones can't afford for you to be a hypocrite. 
That's why you've got to retain your commitment. Because you're going to preach the gospel with your life. C.H. Persian said, How can you serve the Lord with your lips if you do not serve him with your life? How can you preach his gospel with your tongue when your hands, feet, and heart you preach the devil's gospel and sit up the Antichrist by your practical unholiness? Spurgeon had a way with words. <laughs> He's saying, you just got to be real. And at this point here, you want to reach your loved ones for Christ, it starts by presenting the love of God in how you live. Being a Christian, being real, being faithful. We know that God gives very specific instructions to wives concerning the reaching of their husbands. In 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, he says, Likewise, ye wives, being subject to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wife. And you know conversation in the Bible is dealing with your lifestyle, with your actions, with what you do. He says, Well, they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. He says very clearly that you could win your husband to Jesus Christ by your conversation, by your lifestyle. So, beloved, if you want to win, win your family, what do you need to do? You need to present the love of Christ. Secondly, you need to proclaim the love of God to them. You need to proclaim the love of God. You must proclaim the word at least one time personally, yourself, to your loved ones. Now, listen, I know this is hard. I've had conversations with people about witnessing to their family. I told them this, I'll be happy to do it. I'll be happy to come. But you have got to get them under the hearing of the word of God, whether that's you invite them out to a, a, a church that's going to preach the gospel, you invite them to a chili cook-off, you invite them to a place where they can find the gospel of Jesus Christ. You somehow have to get them personally to Jesus Christ. Now, if they personally reject Jesus Christ, that's on them. But you and I have a responsibility to at least present it, at least proclaim it. We can't say, well, I live like a Christian before them, and one day they're going to come to Christ. Beloved, if you don't proclaim it to them, who will? Let me ask you in this room, how many of you in this room have ever had somebody try and witness to you? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So out of this room, there's seven of us that somebody has tried to reach you with the gospel. I'm actually very surprised that that number was that high. Um, the founder of Crusaders for Christ, I can't remember his name, is Bill something. Bill Bright, Bill Bright. Um, he said that less than 2% of Christians ever share their faith. From their research and all they've done, less than 2% of Christians ever share their faith. I'm saying, beloved, if, if, if you don't tell them, proclaim it with your mouth, say something about the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's going to tell them? According to the statistics, nobody. 
they, they, they may see it in your life and that will begin to do the work. But the Bible says in Romans 10, 14, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How are they going to hear unless somebody tells them? Just living like a Christian is the first step and it is vital and it's important. And, and the words that come of our, out of our mouth don't have much weight when our life doesn't back it up. You know that. But if your life backs it up and then you come to them and you proclaim the gospel, you tell them, you say, well, I'm not very skilled at it. It doesn't matter. They understand the the heart of love that's behind it. They understand the goal and ambition, the desire that you love them and you want to see them saved. If you simply cannot just bring yourself to do it personally, then you need to get somebody that you know and trust and take them with you and say, listen, I'm not sure what to say. I don't know how to say it. I get all tongue-tied when I talk about this stuff, but I'm concerned about your soul. And so I brought my friend, or I brought my pastor, and I want him to tell you what Jesus did for me. I want him to tell you about how you can be saved. Something, you've got to be, get the gospel to them. Proclaim it to them. The reason this is so vitally important, beloved, is because I can't imagine a more painful scene than when we get to heaven. And the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse number 18 that their blood will be on our hands. And I know the reality of the fact is, is there will be people in this world who it was my job and responsibility to be a witness to that I failed to do so. I don't, I don't have any illusions about the fact that I have failed many times in presenting the gospel when I should have. And there will be people there on that judgment day whose blood is on my hands. But I can't imagine how much greater that pain will be if it was my son's blood that was on my hands or my father's blood that was on my hands. Let me read that verse for those of you that don't know it. Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17 and 18. He says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the words at my mouth and give them warning for me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from the wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. There's so many ways you could illustrate. I mean, you think about a... Somebody that stood back and, and saw a, spit, a, a pit here full of snakes and saw a child walking to it, instead of, instead of calling out and saying, hey, don't, don't go in there, he just stood back and watched him walk through that and get stung and get killed. That's 100% his fault. That child's death is on his hands. And that's what God is saying. He says, I've given you the truth and you've got the message of the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and there are people that are lost and dying and on their way to hell. 
And if, if you don't tell them, he says, I, their blood's on your hands. And I can't imagine the pain. If for no other reason, beloved, you need to present the gospel to your loved ones so that blood is not on your hands. You have at least told them the truth. You've at least come out of your shell enough and in the power of God. Hey, listen, he says he'll be with you. The Bible says I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And that includes being a witness to your family. Amen? Amen. Now they have to make the decision and there's individual accountability, but at least you told them, hey, don't go there. Stop. If they reject that, you will still be heartbroken, but it won't be your fault. It's a sobering but truthful statement. Then, beloved, we need to pray for pray in faith for them. We need to pray in faith for them. Mark eleven, twenty two to twenty four says, And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Beloved, we know that we need to be praying for them, but are we? This goes back to the point on concern. Just like we were talking about. I mean, how many calls do we get? How many texts do we get? How many emails go out when somebody's loved one is on their way to the hospital? But what about their eternal soul? How much concern is there? There. Well, I put my brother on the prayer list. Uh, he's got to go into surgery this week. When... He's been lost and on his way to hell for 40 years. And he's not on the prayer list yet. He's not on the prayer list yet. You need to be praying for him. Praying in faith. Are you continually and faithfully bringing his name before God? Are you asking others to pray? Listen, don't just put him on the prayer list here at church if you're not praying. If you're not praying personally, don't put them on the prayer list and ask everybody else to hold them up before God. Boy, I want to see my brother saved. Beloved, prayer works. Prayer moves the hand of heaven on our behalf. We've got to pray for the salvation of our loved ones. There's a story of a mother I forget her first name. I'll give you her last name in a minute. She began, she was very burdened about her wayward son. She felt that the time and opportunity to reach her son for Jesus Christ was drifting away. She went away on vacation, and on this vacation, God so burdened her for the heart of her son that she she stopped her vacationing and went back to her room and just got on her knees and began to beg God for the heart of her son. She began to pray, and I don't know the exact extent of the number of hours that she, be, that she prayed, but 
She prayed long enough that ultimately she got a peace and assurance from God that God had heard, not only heard, but answered her prayer. She went home a little over a week later, walked into the house, and she found out the other half of the story. The other half of the story is that during that week, her son was going to go out and participate in some things that he shouldn't, but instead decided to stop and sit down, and he picked up a book. At the very time when she was in her hotel room begging God for the soul of her son, her son was reading this book. The book began to talk about Jesus Christ and the sacrifice. And it very clearly depicted the sacrifice that Jesus gave so that men might be saved, so that men might have their sins forgiven. And he came under the conviction of God and he trusted Jesus as a Savior. When she came home, he was so excited about the decision that he made that he ran to the door and he opened the door and he came out and he says, Mom, Mom, I've got to tell you something. And she looked at him and she says, I already know. She says, you trusted Jesus, didn't you? And he said, I did. That boy's name was Hudson Taylor. We know the story of Hudson Taylor and what God did with him. But it started with a mom who said, I need to reach my son. And I'm going to pray until God does something. Because prayer works. I wonder, who are you praying for right now? Who's on your prayer list? I was hit with a very profound question this last week. Somebody asked me, and I'm going to ask you tonight. If God came to you right now and said every prayer that you have prayed in the last seven days, I'm going to answer completely and fully. Right now, every prayer that you've prayed in the last seven days is going to be answered. Done. What answer would you have? Would you have any relatives that are saved? See what I'm saying is, what are we praying for? What are we praying for? That hit me between the eyes. We say God answers prayer, but if he doesn't, how come we're not asking? How come we're not calling on him and saying, Lord, we need you to do this. This person's lost and on their way to hell. They need to come to Jesus Christ. This burden or that burden or this need or this concern, whatever it might be, if every prayer you prayed in the last seven days was answered, what would you have answered? I can tell you right now that if God came to you and says, hey, every prayer that you pray for the next seven days will be answered, every one of us would be, okay, um, let's see, I need this, and I need this, and oh, I want to see this person saved, and oh, this person needs to come back to Christ, and this person needs to get given church, and, and this person needs to get baptized, and oh, man, we need to see this come happen. Boy, we'd have, a, we'd have a great big list then, wouldn't we?
Beloved, if we'll pray in faith, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, we don't know, but we do know that God answers prayer. And we do know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So you pray for your loved one. You present the love of Christ before them. And you proclaim love of Christ. They might not like it, but they'll know it comes from a heart of love. And beloved, one day you'll be able to rejoice in the victory or the completion that God brings. Look back there in Mark chapter 5, if you would, the conclusion of the chapter, the conclusion of the story. He says, but when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and he said, come, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel rose and walked for she was of the age of 12 years and they were astonished with great astonishment. What I'm saying is you can rejoice in the victory that God brings. I was reading John R. Rice this week on this particular topic. And he's, he, he tried to describe, and I, I don't think that anybody can put it into words, but he tried to describe the joy that enters the heart of a believer when you see somebody you've been praying for come to Christ. When, when you have, have toiled in prayer for their soul and you see them make that decision, maybe Spurgeon could have done it. I don't know. It's a new birth into the family of God wrought through the prayers of the saints. And there's nothing like it. But he also talked about the fact that those that didn't pray, they're kind of like, well, what's the big deal? Who cares? Where are you? I hope we get to rejoice at the great victories that God wrought. Like the Philippian jailer, the Bible says, he rejoiced when his whole house believed in God in Acts 16.34. And when he had brought them into his house, he set men before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his heart. He rejoiced. I know you can rejoice, and we as a church will rejoice with you when you see your loved ones come to Christ.